Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them Nom Nom Now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows Nom Nom Now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom Nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canine conservationists one and use the offer code canine conservationists all one word to get 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping so again that is zen.ai slash canine conservationists number one and use the offer code canine conservationists at checkout you'll get 50 percent off and of course nom nom comes with a money money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Hey all, quick correction up top here. In a few places, I refer to our study area in this episode incorrectly. The proper title is the Jack and Laura Dangerman Preserve. So sorry for the slip up. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we are positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything that connects those. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, we have, I think, three of the four of those represented here. So we've got some land managers, research agencies, and, um, well, researchers and an NGO, all um, at the table talking about the work that we did um, in summer of 2023 in the Dangerman Preserve, helping out some researchers from UC Santa Barbara with their project. So we've got Hillary, Grace, and Elizabeth here. Why don't we start out um, with some introductions? So Hillary, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you have uh, any dogs that you want to tell us about and your research goals. And then we'll, uh, same question with Elizabeth and then Grace. Yeah, um, my name is Hillary Young. I'm a professor at UC Santa Barbara in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Marine Biology. I um, work on conservation biology and community ecology and kind of the interface of those two fields. Um, I am, I have a, one dog, Electron. She's a Border Collie. She would love to be a canine conservation dog, but I think she may have aged out, unfortunately. And yeah, I'm really excited to be working with Elizabeth and Kayla and Grace on um, this project out of Dangerman. Go ahead, Elizabeth. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hiroyasu. I am the preserve scientist at the Jack and Laura Dangerman Preserve um, out of Point Conception. I work for the Nature Conservancy and I am an ecologist, kind of general environmental scientist. I have one dog, Momo, who's a mutt and definitely not qualified to be a <laughs> conservation dog. She is the laziest dog in the world. Not ball motivated at all. We still love her. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And Grace. 
Hi, I'm Grace Lewin. I'm a PhD student at UC Santa Barbara in Hillary Young's lab, and I am really interested in questions studying conservation and these large um, wildlife. And so I'm super excited to be working out at the Dangerman Preserve as well, um, looking at these questions uh, in the system. And do you have a dog? I don't think you do, do you? And I do have a little dog. You do? Her name is Lily. And she is also not fit for a conservation dog. She would rather sleep on the couch all day. Yeah, well, that's that's probably nicer as a PhD student. <laughs> so. All right, so we don't have any new reviews. And I also, I'm in the middle of a move, so I don't have a science highlight prepared for us. So we're just going to jump straight into the interview. So Hillary, why don't we start out with you telling us a little bit about what you and your lab are focused on kind of as those big picture questions and how that led you to doing work um, on the dangerment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our lab, uh, as I said, kind of sits at the nexus of conservation ecology and community ecology. And in particular, I'm really interested in thinking about what um, kind of changes in wildlife communities, usually the loss of wildlife, but sometimes introduction of wildlife what that means to how whole ecosystems function. So basically, you know, we're losing and gaining species all the time in ecosystems around the world. And more often than not, that doesn't cause the whole system to collapse and fall apart. The system keeps on ticking and functioning, um, but there are the loss of certain species or types of species that cause major changes in ecosystem function. So I'm really interested in identifying um, what types of species loss causes loss of ecosystem function. And one function that we're particularly interested in is connectivity. So the idea that ecosystems that are kind of traditionally seen as discrete entities like um, land and ocean or um, rivers and um, stream beds, those systems are actually um, intricately connected, often um, kind of... Um, uh, the connections are so so strong and so deep that if you if you break those connections, both ecosystems stop performing the functions and the whole community starts to fall apart. So I'm really interested in understanding when wildlife loss causes um, connectivity to be lost and kind of causes these cascading effects in uh, reciprocal uh, in both these donor and recipient systems of these subsidies. So I've been working on those questions for almost two decades now, starting out in islands in the Pacific, um, working in high mountain lakes, and most recently been thinking about connectivity on California's coastline. So basically, um, we have one of the most um, wild and protected coastlines in the world in parts of California, and then it abuts some of the most developed and disturbed coastlines in the world. Um, so what do we lose when we um, kind of start developing these coastlines and uh, we no longer allow these natural connections between ecosystems? What does that, what does that mean to these systems? Um, does it really matter? Or... Um, or are they pretty much okay without having this high level of connectivity? So with those questions in mind, um, I was lucky enough to get connected to Dangerman Reserve, um, which um, Elizabeth can tell us a lot more about in a moment. But it's a great system because it is a relatively wild coastline. And we, can, we still have, you know, as intact a faunal community as exists in California um, and, a wild co and a wild marine system too. 
So we have a wild terrestrial, wild marine system next to each other. We can ask kind of what are those natural connections? And then nearby endangerment are systems that are actually quite disturbed and developed. And so we can start thinking about comparative questions too about what happens um, with different levels of human disturbance to those connections. Yeah, excellent. So you said one thing that I want to just chase down a little bit, because this is not something I'm super familiar with before we move on to more about Dangerman. So you said there are cases in which the wildlife loss can lead to connectivity loss. Can you give us an example of that? Like, I've, I've always thought of it like connectivity causing problems or lack of connectivity causing problems for the wildlife, not the other way around. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a several examples of this, one of which is something I did uh, my PhD on years ago. Um, I worked on seabirds out on islands. And basically, um, when the seabirds were lost, either through introduced rats eating their nests or um, introduced plants removing the habitat where these seabirds nest, when these seabirds were lost, they stopped um, bringing nutrients from sea to land through poop through bird guano and the islands are no longer fertilized anymore and so that causes changes in what plants can live there what insects can live there it also causes changes in the quality of the water and so um, it's causing changes back into the nearshore environment so for example um, we found that when these seabirds were lost in the system we, lost, we had reductions in plant diversity, reductions in insect diversity, reductions in whole system food chain length and food chain stability. And then we also see changes in um, the phytoplankton growing near the islands without seabirds and changes in the manta rays um, foraging on the plankton near oh islands God. with or without seabirds. So you got this kind of whole cyclical loop in which kind of the offshore was um, supporting the terrestrial, which was supporting the inshore. And the breakage of this, this one link of the seabirds um, caused the kind of this whole system cascade and um, kind of collapse. Wow. And there's lots of examples like this. This is the one yeah. I happen yeah. to work on, but there's numerous of these. There's hippos in Africa. There's uh -huh. um, trout in um, the Pacific Northwest or salmon in the Pacific Northwest. So. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, and I guess now that now that I see, yeah, now that I think I understand, it's like, oh yeah, I could I could see beavers being something like that. You know, there's that classic wolves in Yellowstone documentary that I feel like exactly. I remember recently someone posting on Twitter about that being a little bit overblown or some of the data being. <laughs> Yeah, I think the wolves in Yellowstone one has been contentious about what exactly is going on there, but yeah. um, but it's a nice yes. story that exemplifies this sort of thing. Exactly. This idea okay. of, of connections across systems, right? That changes in one system to an animal community can cause kind of cascading effects across systems. And there's certain groups that we now like absolutely recognize do this. Seabirds are the classic one. Um, okay. But, you know, I'm working on land crabs and saying, you know, are land crabs really important? And, you know, one of the things we're asking in California are big predators important in this system uh -huh. um, as connectors. We don't often think of it, although there's growing awareness that sometimes these big predators do use coastal habitats. Um, but um, so kind of a, maybe a new group of species that we really need to be thinking about, um, and maybe a slightly different pathway by which those connections are important. Very cool. So okay, so now we've got a little bit of a primer on why you were excited to work in Dangerman. <laughs> um, Elizabeth, can you tell us a little bit about the Dangerman Preserve? Because this is a really special, interesting place. Sure, yeah. The Jack and Laura Dangerman Preserve, which we often refer to as 
the preserve or the Dangerman Preserve. Um, yeah, it's it's one of the most special places in California um, and a place that conservationists have had their eye on for a, a really long time. The preserve itself is over 24,000 acres and it's the entire area surrounding Point Conception, um, which is what we refer to as kind of the elbow of California where the coastline shifts from going east-west to going north-south or north south to east west depending on what direction you're traveling up up the coast um and so it's at the top of the california bite and what's really exciting and unique about it is it is an area where things meet and so in the ocean it's where the northern and southern california currents meet and so it's an area of extraordinary mixing um, in the ocean but it's also where the northern and southern california ecotones meet so we also see that reflected on land as well and so that mixing has really important implications for what you see. It makes it an area of really high biodiversity. So we see a lot of different northern and southern California species in the same place where you wouldn't necessarily see them together. Um, and it can be a really important biogeographic boundary, especially in the ocean. And so that has a lot of implications as we think about species resilience and persistence under climate change, what might get stuck at these areas of mixing or um, where do we have these novel assemblages. For conservation, it's also a really special place because we share a border with the Point Conception State Marine Reserve, which is a reserve in the ocean with the highest level of protection. So there's no take. And it's been demonstrated that these reserves, these areas of protection have high bi higher biodiversity and higher kind of species composition um, that and species kind of assemblages that are a bit more intacted. That is shown even all the way out to the edges of these systems. So having this kind of dual land-sea protection um, is really exciting opportunity and a really exciting opportunity to answer questions like those that Hillary have posed um, to understand the connectivity between these systems. Um, kind of the preserve by the numbers, I guess, we could say um, we have about eight miles of coastline. And when you combine that with the protected coastline of the Vandenberg Space Force Base and the relatively less trafficked coastline of um, Hollister Ranch, that's about a 21 mile transect of coastline um, with much less human influence than some of the classic maybe Southern California beaches that we think of. Um, we have about 50 miles of streams, and the uh, Dangerman Preserve encompasses over 90% of the Halama watershed. So to have a single watershed in um, single ownership is a really exciting both research and conservation opportunity because it means there's a lot of opportunities for restoration and to understand the full effects across the entire watershed from the headwaters to where it meets the oceans. Um, we have about 6,000 acres of coast live oak woodland and forest, which is um, an area that is particularly exciting to me, um, and over 200 wildlife species that have been documented on the preserve, and that's something that we're 
constantly adding to. I get emails from folks who are like, oh, I just saw this species on the preserve. Can you check and see if it's on your list? And oftentimes it's not. Um, so it's, uh, it's a really exciting place. It's a really, I think it has the expression of some of the most important California ecosystem types across it. It also has really um, important expression of what I call every era of of California history. So it's on the traditional unceded territories of the Chumash peoples and is a really important area, um, an area of cultural significance. And so, um, you know, is an area that has been stewarded by the Chumash since time immemorial. And from that point forward, it expresses every kind of era of California history, including the colonization era, um, the ranching era of California history, um, the World War II era, um, with a lot of military history of the region and into the present. Wow. Yeah, that's really, I actually didn't know some parts of that, which is exciting after we've been through so many interviews together. Um, so you said something that uh, kind of surprised me. So you're still running into new species on this preserve. Is that because there are just so many or is it because this preserve is a little bit newer to really being focused on as a conservation area? I think it's both. Um, I think that, you know, the Nature Conservancy acquired the preserve in 2017. And so we're mm -hmm. coming up on um, five years of ownership here in December. And so, um, we're still getting to know the place. I've worked at the preserve for two years now, and I am still learning roads. I'm still learning where um, my favorite trees are, my favorite rocks are, um, still learning and seeing new species all the time. Um, and I'm out there quite a bit. Um, and I think, you know, we're kind of, I think, in the nascent stages of doing those kind of full surveys to understanding what's there. I think also it being a place of incredible mixing and knowing that we're seeing the effects of climate change, knowing we're seeing species moving already, um, it also means that there are new arrivals um, and perhaps new departures. And so we're still trying to get that baseline understanding of what's here now and what's actually changing, what is a reflection of the climate changing, what is what are new patterns that maybe haven't been documented but are have been happening, um, and all of kind of those pieces. So really, I think we're early days and knowing what's what out there. Yeah, that's really neat. So, Grace, I know you're still very early in your PhD journey, but why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on and um, how you got connected with this project, and yeah, what you're what you're really looking for here, and why uh, why these two things are coming together for you. Um. Yeah. So, I am really interested in kind of exactly what, you know, Hillary's talking about, about the connectivity and these conservation questions related to those connectivity issues. And then, you know, combine that with what Elizabeth has just said about how important and special this place is along the coast. I think those are two reasons why um, working on questions um, similar to this has been really exciting to me. 
Um, so what I'm currently working on in this um, is uh, really asking questions of um, what, so we've seen from like camera images and from first hand accounts, we've seen um, these large mammals on the coasts, on the beaches, um, on the sand, deep parts of beaches along the along these coasts. And so that was super exciting to me. And I think one uh, question that follows from where, you know, if we see them, what are they doing? Um, and mm-hmm. are they eating things there? And do if they're eating, then how is that connectivity um, being facilitated? And are, are, is any nutrients being brought up from those coasts to um, inland areas? Um, so since these large mammals have such large home ranges compared to other, you know, smaller, smaller animals that might be around, um, those, that impact could be, could be really important. Yeah. So what are some of the species that you're particularly interested in for people who maybe aren't as familiar with kind of central California coast? What do we even have around here? Yeah. So um, this system has a lot lot of really interesting wildlife. Um, There are coyotes, there's bobcats, there's mountain lions, there's definitely lots of deer around. Um, There are the wild hogs, And um, there are potentially some bears around as well. And so we uh, are, we're really interested in kind of seeing who is on this beach and Mm -hmm. what might they be eating um, around and if there is a marine influence to their diets. So Mm -hmm. the project that I'm working on currently is really focusing on this diet analysis for these species in this um, coastal environment. Gotcha. So yeah, and we're going to get into some of the the methods that you and Hillary have been using so far to that end. But um, so we've talked about all the terrestrial species. Are we thinking that they're eating fish or are there particular marine mammals that might be involved as well? And I, I kind of know the answer to these questions, but I'm, I'm speaking for the listener right now. <laughs> um, I think the I mean, my answer might be we don't quite know yet. Um, sure. But uh, I would say if we had to guess, we would say perhaps they're eating some, maybe they're eating some marine mammals that are washing up. Um, and perhaps there's some scavenging there. I think we've seen some evidence of that um, on cameras and just looking at things we've seen on beaches. Um Maybe they're eating some invertebrates. Mm-hmm. Who knows? We will find yeah, out. Yeah, Kayla, if you think you know the answer, like, uh, <laughs> you know more than we do, for oh, sure. No, I was, well, I will I jump in and say... Us. Go ahead. Uh, oh, I'll just jump in and say that we have seen... So this, in addition to the SCAT project, which I know we're going to talk about today, we've been having cameras up at Dangerman for more than a year. And, um, you know, just uh, yesterday, these guys were out there expanding that camera trap array. And so we do have some knowledge from the camera traps. We see them with um, cormorants or pelicans in their mouth. Mm-hmm. And we also see them um, with uh, uh, gumboot chitons and some invertebrates in there. And they look like they're actively foraging in the intertidal. 
um, we got a camera trap uh, result just from the other, um, from a ranch next door to Dangerman a month ago, showing the coyotes foraging on a piglet. Um, so maybe they're coming down and eating animals that are coming down and eating in the intertidal. So we're getting like oh, multiple levels of things happening. Certainly, I wouldn't be surprised. We see lots of rats and mice um, coming mm-hmm. up on the beach. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they're for if these animals are also coming down to forage on animals that are foraging in the intertidal. So oh, I think cool. the answer is correct that we don't know. But we do know, we don't know what's most common. But we do know that there's a lot of different things that they're predating on in this kind of coastal environment. And I can say, um, you know, Grace and Hillary's project represents just one of over 80 research projects across the Dangermond Preserve. So we do support a huge amount of research happening on on the preserve and other research projects that we've done on small mammals have already demonstrated, at least in the preliminary results, that we do see uh, signatures of um, marine foraging in the small mammal population. I'll also say anecdotally, having spent a lot of time just walking around the preserve and a lot of time sifting through scat that we find on the preserve, you know, we were up at the north end of the preserve, which is at least six miles from the nearest coastline, maybe more. Um, And we found a scat just the other day and we were digging through it. And there's definitely evidence of what look like maybe digested chitin or some kind of marine shells um, in the scat. And, you know, that means that that animal had to eat that travel many miles, many canyons for, and within about six hours and then deposit that scat pretty far away. And so we, we know anecdotally that there's a lot of Mm -hmm. things moving around the preserve. Um, And so, uh, we'd like to put some numbers to that and really understand what that means for the system. And I think for conservation and land management, really thinking about what that means for what we do both on the preserve, what folks who live in these coastal systems can do to better support um, the the whole ecosystem and how different land management, how different um, use of beach ecosystems, coastal ecosystems can um, really influence what we see across the rest of close by or adjacent ecosystems. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think, yeah, my original question was maybe poorly worded because I was just trying to get us to say, do we have sea lions or sea otters on this <laughs> on this coastline? Or um, just getting us to name a couple of those other species that may or may not be part of this picture right now. And I have found sea otter carcasses up on the coastal prairie. Mm-hmm. So we know things are pulling sea otters out of the water and depositing yeah. them up above. Yeah, which I know when I saw your original um, intake, Grace, kind of coming through to work with us, that was the, like, the first thing that I got excited about because my lab mate here at OSU, who is now my roommate, um, has been doing a lot of work with the coastal wolves up in southern Alaska, and they're doing quite a bit of predation on the sea otters. So it was really cool to see another project coming through where we're looking at this like terrestrial marine interface. Like, oh my God, is everyone eating sea otters? We just don't know. <laughs> But I mean, uh, to answer your question, I mean, there's seals, sea lions, elephant seals, um, otters, and um, I'm trying to think of, oh, and we get with a bunch of dolphins washing up on the coast um, and clearly getting scavenged by large animals on the coast. So I think lots of marine mammals um, are getting scavenged. Whether or not there's actual predation happening with marine mammals, yeah. I don't know. 
Um, unless it's like the sick and dying animals of domoic acid, I'd be a little surprised, but maybe not. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that would be, you know, I know this is one of the things we're getting ahead of ourselves, but this is one of the things we spent a lot of time talking about as we were out doing the surveys. It's like, gosh, you know, if this is just something that doesn't happen really frequently, you know, how, what do we have to do in order to really confirm uh, or support its presence or absence or the presence or absence of these interactions and behaviors? Because again, if we're not assuming it's something that happens every day, how exactly do you guys set up your surveys and your various survey methods to, you know, feel like you've got enough evidence to actually say anything about what's happening? So maybe we should start out with um, Hillary and Grace um, telling us a little bit about your survey methods so far. I know we've got camera traps going on. What else are what else are we doing and how um, how did dogs end up becoming part of this picture? Um, I can back out the camera chat piece and then Grace, I'll, I'll turn over dogs scat, uh, and, <laughs> scat and dogs to you, um, which is um, for the last year, we've had um, an amazing, uh, another PhD student, Zoe Zoltz, um, leading a project um, in kind of the Gaviota Coast area, looking at um, wildlife use of coastlines using cameras. And so she's had um, an array of cameras set up across um, various areas of the Gaviota coastline in coastal ecosystems, basically trying to understand who's using the beach, when are they using the beach, and how are they using the beach. Um, so, you know, we assume that there's a really strong seasonal signal in beach use, um, both because the um, things that wash ashore or that are in the marine system change throughout the year. So you have the marine seasonality of, you know, domoic acid poisonings, perhaps more common in certain months. You have um, big um, king tide events in different months. So there are real seasonal pulses of different types of nutrients that we would think might draw different types of animals down. And then you also have seasonality, of course, in the terrestrial system. So the terrestrial system is a pretty hard place to live in California come fall when nothing has been growing for months and it's dry and, you know, um, some of the animal populations have crashed. So there's not as much prey available. So um, there can be different draws to the coastal system across here. So we've been looking at, yeah, that combination of who uses it when and why with camera traps. But there's a lot you can't get at with camera traps. You can't answer the question of what are they doing down there? You might get some anecdotal evidence of, you know, mm -hmm. a gumboot chitin in the coyote's mouth or something. But, you know, is that important to them? Is it um, common? We can't get that well with camera traps. So that's part of where SCAT surveys comes in. And we've also been doing or piloting, and Grace can talk about this too, some hair sampling that might ultimately complement that. But um, I think the the meat of what we're doing in this next part is about poop. And so Grace, I will pass that off to you. Great. Perfect. <laughs> I'm going to poop. Um, yeah. So all of that really important information through those, that camera project and that's still ongoing is so important to this. Um, and so we decided to start um, scat surveys along the coastline um, for just to really see what we find. Um, this summer is was really just like the first exploratory phase of this project. And so um, we have been really interested to see what we find out there. 
Um, so in terms of, of methods, it's really walking trails that we think animals might walk and walking um, beaches that we think they might walk. A lot of that is influenced by where we see them on the cameras, by where we see tracks of the animals that we're interested in, and of course where we see um, other scat from those animals that we're interested in. And some of those places been places that we found things has been surprising to us. And sometimes it's been, wow, I didn't expect there to be this many bobcats on this trail. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, but the methods, I mean, the methods are very uh, simple uh, that we, we go and we, we see where we can find this guy and we pick it up and we uh, get the data that we need to get about when and where and, how fresh was it and what species do we think it is? And then um, we've taken that back to the lab and are now in the process of going towards DNA extraction and then doing some uh, DNA to see what's actually being eaten. Yeah, cool. So yeah, uh, per usual, you know, the poop is just the, the, the first step and then we've got we've to do all sorts of analysis to actually figure out what that poop can tell us. Because, you know, as you said, sometimes it might be a little obvious, like Elizabeth, that was a great example of, okay, a cat sample that's six miles in that has visible evidence of something that looks like it was from kind of that intertidal zone. Okay, that's great. But, you know, if we're looking for um, more evidence or kind of specific species and some, that's where we start needing the lab to be involved as well. So, um, yeah, how was that working with human searchers and what did, uh, what did you uh, notice kind of bringing the dogs to the table to that? Um, I hope it helped since, you know, I was there, but. <laughs> it really, it really helped. Yeah. And, um, you know, working with the dogs, the idea of working with the dogs was really exciting to us because we can see the poop and we can go where we think they might have gone, but these dogs can really, you know, smell and have a better idea of where, uh, you know, where, where it might be and where these animals really might have been. And so, uh, to, an to answer that question, I think that's why we were super excited to work with you, um, and the dogs. And so, yeah, the experience of actually working with the dogs was, was awesome. Um, I think we definitely saw them find scat that we wouldn't have found ourselves. And especially when we were on beaches, I had not thought that we would find much on the actual beach just because number one, the tide washes in and out so quickly um, that you, you know, you don't really have much of a window to find things. And two, just, I thought, well, maybe these animals are cruising through and why would they stop to poop? So um, once we got like Barley and Scotty out on the beach and they started really finding things, I was like, okay, we are surveying this beach every single time we come out now. We're not just going on the inland trails um, or right along the bluffs. And so that was one thing that I thought was super um, awesome. And it changed my, it changed my uh, survey methods really. I'll also jump in with a, a slightly contradictory but complementary thought too, I think, which is uh, Barley and Scotty were able to find like ridiculously tiny and destroyed poop <laughs> particles. I was super impressed, but it also in some ways convinced me that um, 
I can find the good, the easy stuff for some things, right? Like I, I realized that what I need them for is finding like the rare species that I can't find, right? Like the yeah. occasional puma or bear or something, because uh, when there's, you know, they absolutely found all kinds of poop. I would never ever in a million years have found on the beach, but a lot of it was like, well, we can, um, we can't use it be or we won't use it because it's so degraded compared to fresh stuff. And so it was actually very heartening to me to be like, okay, um, there isn't a whole world of poop that I'm not seeing. They're just fine. I mean, there is a whole world of poop I'm not seeing, but there's not a whole world of poop that I can use that yeah. I'm not seeing. And so that was really um, actually in some ways heartening to me to be like, okay, um, I can visually walk the beach myself, find the poop and um, get it for these common species. And what I really need the dogs for is, you know, to go out and find mountain lion or bear or that random poop in the middle of nowhere that I'm never going to find because my God, they can find small poop fragments. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Think, exactly. Think... There was definitely a couple where I was so proud of the dogs for finding them. There was, I, I we're probably all thinking of the same one that was like the size of a thumbnail that Barley spent like five minutes going in circles in this, you know, and I thought that it was the, the wind was kind of eddying and circling in this area. And I thought it was up the Canyon. So I kept trying to send Barley up this Canyon. And then we actually found it on the way back because we left and came back. And um, it was all the way out in this inner tidal zone. And it was just so tiny and so beat up. And it was, you know, so proud of him. But also, yeah, there were the chances of that actually telling us anything once we tried to extract that DNA was really low. So impressive, but not helpful. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, really helpful for the knowledge, right? Like if he's uh -huh. finding that, then there aren't like tons of poops that yeah. I'm missing. Right. So mm -hmm. it was actually like really informative. Like he found, like you said, a, a thumbnail size piece, like under a giant heaping pall of seaweed that had probably been in the sea for a week or something. I don't know what, but right. Like how yeah. he knew that was there. I have no friggin' clue, but it did convince me that if he was finding that there wasn't a whole world of poop on that beach that we weren't seeing. Right. Yeah, uh, definitely. Once, you know, that first day, this always happens to me when I'm out in the field on a new project is that first day until we found that first scat. I was like, oh, gosh, is this working? Like, are they are they missing stuff? And then as soon as Scotty started finding stuff on that first survey, I was like, OK, now I feel good saying that that first two miles, there was actually just nothing for him to find because um, so I think the dogs, you know, they can be really helpful in kind of confirming absence where you're not sure if you're not seeing it or if it's genuinely not there. And, you know, we can't guarantee that there was literally nothing that the dogs missed. They probably did. But it, it does confirm that. I have to tell you that from my perspective, there. it was at least like at least half of the value was in confirming absence, right? Was yeah. in knowing where they weren't, right? Like we, I, we went up to that one bluff area where there were all these dead cormorant carcasses in the ice plant. And I thought the place was going to be just littered with poop and I wasn't seeing it. And to have the dogs go by and, you know, not see it um, mm -hmm. was in many ways really comforting. I'm like, okay, I don't have to search that area exhaustively every time we survey it. So right. it was super helpful for not finding things in some places and for finding them in others. Yeah, I think this project was also an interesting one for me as far as, you know, really seeing, because we had three really different types of vegetation cover that we were working through. So we had that sand area that had clumps of seaweed and those were really tricky and interesting for the dogs to work through on like an olfactory level. Then we had that ice plant, which is kind of like a, it's like a ground cover succulent. It's probably what, eight inches tall. 
um, and can be really, really thick, maybe a little taller than that as well as with many. Yeah. It's a non-native, uh, and quite invasive, um, succulent from South Africa and it grows in kind of a low ground cover, but it leaves a thatch. So it dies and it grows on top of it. So you get these deep layers of thatch that are, yeah, probably six to eight inches deep with Mm -hmm. lots of little crevices for poop or snakes or small rodents to to hide in um and it was really interesting to see that you know a lot of the scat that we see on the roads is the scat that's there Mm -hmm. and it's not really hidden down in that thatch layer yeah yeah i was surprised by that and that was a funny one as well because both of the dogs we had on this project are trained to find dead birds as well so we're having a little bit of back and forth discussions with the dogs of okay yes there are dozens of dead seabirds here um but we're we're you're going to get a piece of kibble for those ones and then if you find any scat then we're going to throw the party because um you know we were just getting stopped by dead seabirds constantly um and then you know that third ecosystem was more of that oak woodland and what we saw there was that first um survey of what were you were calling that bobcat lane bobcat alley what were you calling Bob, that bobcat trail bobcat trail <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um you know, we we took barley out of the car and walked, what, a quarter mile and found like 30 scats. Um, and we actually had to go talk to a reporter from NPR then. So we, we were cutting it off anyway. But then when we went back to that site, you know, we chose to pull Scotty out because Scotty was not trained on coyote. Um, so we were hoping that we'd be able to move a little bit quicker. And what I really enjoyed on that particular one was, yeah, you know, we were seeing tons and tons of samples. So we didn't really need the dogs for parts of that survey, at least, because it was it was just so covered in poop, you could do it yourself. But I, I and I don't know, Grace, if this was as useful for you as I felt like it was. <laughs> um, but having Scotty there to say, coyote, 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 bobcat, you know, and telling us which ones were of which species was really helpful and really cool to see him able to make that discrimination because those samples look so similar. Yeah, I think that was really cool. And again, I think it, it really was helpful for confirmation too, both in that honestly helping us figure out how to identify the two, because they are very Mm -hmm. tricky to identify, but also to know that I think, you know, working with Scotty throughout the couple days, we had seen him not alert to some things and then alert to other things. And so I think that was really cool to see him do it in real time with them right next to each other. And so we were like, oh, well, all the stuff he passed up that we may have seen with our eyes, that was probably Coyote. That probably wasn't Bobcat. And so seeing um, him really only alert to the Bobcat was um, it was really interesting to just see that um, right right there so clearly. Yeah, it'll be interesting to get the DNA back and uh, hopefully it shows that he was actually yeah. doing species and otherwise it's going to be fascinating to see what the correlation is if it's not if it's not species. But I think we were we were feeling pretty good about it. And, you know, Gracie and I had a discussion, you know, I was like, I, I really want to keep him off of coyote. So what we're going to do is especially because this is such a target rich environment, if between mostly you and then a little bit of me backing you up. If we don't feel like 70, 80% sure that this is Bobcat, if it's kind of visually ambiguous or degraded, we're going to go ahead and not reward him for it anyway, just because we want, we really wanted to make sure that we could maintain that utility for him. And I think we've already talked as well in the future, you know, as Hillary alluded to, I think if we end up coming back to help y'all out with more surveys, we're going to try to have a dog 
available that is just on Puma and maybe Black Bear as well. So we've also got a dog that could come out and work in some of those really, really dense environments, but really just find those those species that are a lot less frequent and a lot lower density. Because even, I mean, even with the him with Scotty just finding Bobcat on Bobcat Trail, I mean, it's got that name for a reason. We were still... <laughs> I don't, I don't know how many pin flags we put down that day, but it was still a lot. Canine Conservationist is thrilled to offer a self-study online class for those interested in joining the field of conservation dog professionals. This course includes 18 modules of video lecture, assigned reading, homework, and quizzes. We have lectures from 10 amazing guest instructors, including fostering motivation and joy through hide placement training with Laura Holder of Conservation Dogs Collective, safety training and assessments of dog teams with guests Fiona Jackson and Tracy Litton of Skyless Ecology, special considerations for insect and plant training samples with Arden Blumenthal of the New York, New Jersey Trail Conference, and building networks and acquiring clients with Paul Bunker. Our alumni group is active and supportive, and we welcome students of all levels and backgrounds. The course is priced at $750 with generous financial aid and discounts available for Patreon members. Learn more and sign up at canineconservationist.org slash class. Yeah, yeah, that trail is so cool because it's got, I mean, we're talking about this so much Bobcat scat and it's Bobcat trail, but what that visually looks like is like just let, multiple latrines. And so these Bobcats, they they use what we call latrines where there's lots of scat in one spot. And so when you walk these trails, you just see just so much scat in one place where they're going to the same sp- place um, each time. and we've put some cameras out out there and have, have just seen the traffic of bobcats walking on that trail and it's crazy yeah and i don't know whether you're able to say this but have you seen anything else cool on those camera traps so far um yeah we've seen we've actually got one picture of a mountain lion on that uh on that trail and so we didn't find the scat of it but we uh did see a picture of it um so if it, uh, those cameras were, it, as Hillary mentioned earlier, can circle back, we were also kind of trialing some hair snaring, which is where we're trying to grab hair off of animals um, in different ways. And so these hair snares have different kind of methods of brushes and carpet pads and these like artificial turf pads that kind of we think kind of can catch hair. And so it was, this mountain lion was kind of sniffing sniffing one of those um so super cool so those trails are being definitely used yeah um, we got to get niffler out there and yeah just just do a big puma only survey and see if we can yeah. find anything i mean with those big predators you would expect them to be pooping on the trail if they're pooping in that area but you know it'd be really interesting to see if we can get out there with a with a puma only dog and find anything that we we may have missed or just be able to cover a lot more ground a lot more quickly because even though we weren't necessarily collecting, honestly, the majority of the scat that we were finding, um, we still were having to slow down and, you know, check to see if we wanted to reward the dog and then reward the dog. And then we were still taking coordinates on a fair number of them, even if we weren't actually collecting. So it'd be nice to have a dog that could move us through a lot more quickly. I will just say, you know, again, highlighting both the importance of like, I think it was great to have done this round with the dogs that did find more of everything, uh, partly to, you know, we're equally interested in those mesocarnivores as we are the big ones, right? Like, so there's, 
kind of different layers of questions about these different species. So it's just as important to know what these mesocarnivores were and weren't as where the pumas and bears were and weren't um, from, from the perspective of like those big questions that I was starting out with at the beginning, like how important is connectivity? It, you know, those, it's obvious, like those mega predators, those big species are, you know, possibly keystone species in this system where they're having outsized you know effects on the ecosystem and so you know a little effect to them of coastal systems might mean a whole lot to the big system but mm-hmm. equally likely they're rare right and they may not drive the whole system and so if we're actually thinking about like the energetic connections of of what's important it's maybe the coyotes and the bobcats those super common mm-hmm. you know mountains of poop that are being deposited inland um or you know the things that are moving the chitons and and such inland so i guess which is to say it was equally important to us to know where those mesocarnivores were and weren't as to know um kind of as to find those big predators. So in the future, we might need the dogs more for finding the big predators because now we have the were and weren't answers already mm-hmm. from one unit of use of the dogs. But yeah. I, well, and I can imagine for you all as well, you know, as we were alluding to with genetic sampling and all, you know, it's not guaranteed that if we find one poop that's going to necessarily have enough data, you know, if that poop did contain sea lion, okay, that doesn't necessarily tell us how often they're eating sea lion. And it, it also doesn't answer whether it was scavenging or predation. Um, probably scavenging, we would think. But, you know, we just don't know. Um, so you you need, I assume, some kind of number of samples in order to be able to say this proportion have and this proportion have not <laughs> influence from those marine ecosystems. So, you know, that's, again, where it was probably nice to have all of these mesocarnivores to actually hopefully be able to answer some of these, like, proportionality questions. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, I guess I'd love to kind of round out with just any other discussions or, you know, stories, anything that you guys saw as highlights um, or other kind of lessons learned from being in the field with the dogs. Um, I've already yammered a little bit about some of my favorites. I loved their accessories. Um, the <laughs> doggles were a big hit, uh, yeah. especially with our team at TNC when I sent some photos around of, of the work that we did. Um, it was really exciting. Was one of the things that we're really excited about is, you know, using some non-invasive sampling techniques. So the scat detection um, both by humans and by dogs is a way to really get some great snapshots into what's happening now. And um, it, it gives us kind of a good baseline for understanding what's, what's going on with the system. And the questions that Hillary and her lab are trying to answer are going to be really important and foundational as we think about, you know, large scale restoration projects across the preserve, as we think about how we build out our programming. And even as we think about how, how we go about, um, maybe allowing researchers um, on our coastlines in order to really protect those systems and make sure that we're not impacting wildlife, that we're not impacting this, you know, connectivity um, across the the system and make sure that we're helping to really conserve these species. So really understanding how the, that connectivity is related to land management, how it's related to use, how it's related to um, seasonality and, and things like that is, is really going to be foundational for us as we build out a large research enterprise around this work. 
Yeah, I'll just add on that I, I'm with you, Elizabeth. I'm really curious to learn about kind of gradations in human use and the effects of connectivity. I mean, I think we know um, certainly the, the far end, right? The, the parking lot, the kind of end of development has very little connectivity uh, left. But um, where does that connectivity fall off and kind of how pristine do these coastlines need to be? And, you know, I think that that's questions that, you know, these dogs are helping answer by saying, do you still need bear and mountain lion in this system to maintain that connectivity? Or, you know, are animals like coyotes that are relatively robust to human disturbance and perturbation still maintaining that connectivity? And also like how much use kind of from the camera trapping type work, how much use causes the kind of drop off of different species? So I think those kind of these data sets are going to talk together really well to answer some of these questions. I'll just say that I I think I think just having the dogs and these questions and having the dogs be a method of use to kind of answer these questions is a an additional method when we talk about you know science methods and just having having scat detection dogs as a method in our toolbox whether it's the only one or you know in conjunction with all these to answer these questions about connectivity connectivity and wildlife and all this is just super exciting and i think it's it's um really a benefit to have kind of all these tools at our you know at our fingertips and kind of be open and experimental with with different ways to find this information and we can really find some cool things with that yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the things we often end up emphasizing to our clients. And, you know, when we're giving talks to biologists as well, it's like the dogs are not coming to take your job. Uh, <laughs> they are, they're definitely part of the team. And, you know, as we've talked about, the camera traps helped tell us where we might be most interested in going out and doing the surveys with the dogs. The human surveys told us where we might want to go out and look with the dogs. And there's always humans attached to the dogs as well to decide, you know, are we seeing something that the dog missed? Because that also happens, you know, all the time where for some reason a scat is available to us visually, but, you know, based on wind or thermals or dryness or something, the dog doesn't notice it. So there's always, you know, we're always part of the team. And then also, you know, deciding which of the samples we need to collect and everything like that. So I, I think this was a really lovely example of how dogs need to be and can be part of a team and part of a really diverse and interesting strategy to um, to answer some of these questions. They're not um, they're not the silver bullet for sure, um, but they can be definitely part of a bigger bigger research effort. So um, yeah, anything that you guys wanted to circle back to or expand on before we reround things out? No, I appreciate uh, you coming out, Kayla. I learned so much um, from having you and the dogs out there, so I was really grateful. Yeah, we're uh, we're we're always really grateful to get to be out. And Elizabeth, thank you so much for helping coordinate with um, with the Dangerman Preserve. Um, I mean, it's such a cool, special place, and we really enjoyed being out there. And yeah, hopefully, we get to come back out. Uh, with you guys, or, you know, I, I should also say we were also out there working with Dr. Way, Raywin Grant's team. And, uh, you know, we're just focusing on this research now for, uh, we've hinted at the podcast before that we did work with Dr. Wynn Grant, but there's going to be other media coming out about that. So we can't say anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we really appreciated getting to be out there and we got to learn a lot and 
have a lot of interesting learning again with, you know, all of the different vegetation types we were running into and seeing the variability and kind of dog success rate. I didn't even mention like we had sagebrush that we were working through as well. in one of the areas that was, I think, kind of our lowest find area. Hard to say whether that was because of the sagebrush or because of how the animals are moving there, but or not moving there. But anyway, okay. Um, so why don't we start out with Elizabeth, tell us where people can learn more about the Dangerman Preserve, TNC, and then Hillary, the same for you and your lab. Great. Yeah. Uh, you can learn more at the Dangerman Preserve at our new website, dangermanpreserve.org. I think if you type dangermanpreserve.com.net, they'll all lead to the same place, which is dangermanpreserve.org. Um, and there you can learn more about the Dangerman Preserve. You can learn about the Point Conception Institute, which we didn't talk much about here. Um, but that is kind of the research and export arm of the Dangerman Preserve to really take all the lessons we're learning at Dangerman and export those out to the rest of the conservation world. Um, Hopefully the kind of drop in the bucket research that we're doing in one place can be uh, good lessons learned for the rest of the conservation world. Um, and you can learn more about the Nature Conservancy at nature.org. And there you can learn about all of the work that we're doing across the world. The Nature Conservancy is a global organization and the Dangerman Preserve is just one of um many, many nature preserves and conservation lands across the world. Um, and you can learn more about all of our different work at nature.org. You can also donate if you're interested in supporting the conservation efforts of the Nature Conservancy there as well. Yeah, well, um, I don't have as many great places to direct you to, but you you can go to UC Santa Barbara's uh, website. So we have, we have a Young Lab. Um, if you search Young Lab and UC Santa Barbara, um, it'll pop right up. And we have a publications page that has all of our research um, papers, the raw papers listed there. They often have links to popular science articles that might be more accessible um, about those um, kind of research publications. And then we, um, on that page, also have a research site where we um, describe some of the projects going on in our lab. Although I have to say, Grace, I think you have to put up this project because I don't think it's up there yet. So um, a to-do list item for you. It is. Stay tuned for the <laughs> recap of the, of the project. I will put that up. You've got, you've got quite a bit of time between uh, this recording and when it goes live. So maybe that's your due date now. There um, you go, Grace. Get it up yeah, there. <laughs> I'm sure you don't have anything else that's on your to-do list. <laughs> um, all right. Well, everyone, yeah, thank you guys so much for coming on. And um, I know scheduling something like this is always a Herculean feat. So um, thanks for uh, being flexible and working with us on this. I appreciate thanks it, Kayla. And thanks for working yeah. with me, my schedule too. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, thank I mean, you, Kayla. I'm always understanding of someone being in Costa Rica as uh, part of the reason that scheduling is challenging. <laughs> It was not um, the right place to try to do a video or a, a podcast call. Yeah, but there, <laughs> but there tried that. It, it's often very challenging. Um, yeah, and for everyone at home, you probably know this by now, but you can find all of our information at canineconservationists.org. You can sign up for the course. You can sign up for Patreon to support this podcast. You can buy a bento box with Barley's face on it if you need that. What? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're great. Um, and all of that, again, at canineconservationists.org. We'll be back next week. Bye.